So as some of you may know from watching my Instagram stories or maybe just previous episodes of this podcast, I have been elbows deep in learning how to make hard cheeses this year. And when I say elbows deep, that's literally because when you make a four gallon batch of cheese, you know, sometimes you're stirring with your hand and you're literally up to your elbows in whey and curds and it's everywhere in the kitchen and it gets sticky. But anyway, that has been my life the past few months, ever since our cow had her baby. Um, you may recall from my YouTube video, our calf actually died about two weeks after it was born. We don't know why it died, but normally I have our calf to help us consume this large quantity of milk. And it has always taken the pressure off of me to deal with that milk. Well, when our calf died, all of that milk now was something that I had to deal with. Um, we do have a bottle calf that helps us a little bit, but still that's, you know, we get six gallons a day. The bottle calf might drink two gallons maybe. And that gives me, you know, four gallons a day of milk that I need to do something with. I'm not going to pour it out, right? It's, it's an amazing, nutritious resource. I have to do something with it. And so I was like, you know what, Jill? Now is your time. It's time to learn how to actually make hard cheeses consistently that taste good because I've tried it in the past and my results were rather lackluster. So anyway, that's what I've been doing the last few months. I've been making sometimes a batch of cheese every day, generally like four wheels a week. It's given me lots of chances to fail and try again. Um, but one of the things that I started to get frustrated about when I was first playing with all of this milk is that I have some really good cheese books, but a lot of them are geared towards kind of more professional home cheesemakers. And what I mean by that is like someone who maybe is doing this as a very extensive hobby. Maybe they're retired or maybe they're planning to sell cheese at the farmer's market and they are all in on the cheese making. And so this is something they're spending hours and hours and hours and hours on each week, just making it perfect. And I like that idea, but it's not reality with my life. And I would say it's not reality for most homesteaders who have children and who have other aspects of things they're doing on the homestead or businesses they're running. Like we're not going to be full-time cheese hobbyists. And so I felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect there. And I kind of was struggling to convert some of this really intricate cheese making information into what I needed in my life. And that's when I found Robin Jackson of cheese making from scratch. Now I initially came across her on Instagram and right away I clicked on her profile because her title, her, her handle is cheese making from scratch. And I was like, I need to follow this person. This person has what I need. And I instantly felt drawn to her. Um, I have since bought her cheese making course and she's just very reassuring. And she spoke exactly to the problems that I was experiencing. Side note, for those of you who are my entrepreneur people and you listened to the last season, we talked about solving a problem. Robin solved the problem. She spoke to the exact problem I was experiencing. So I literally was like, here, take my money. I will buy your course no matter what it costs because I know you have the solution I need. And she did. So I've been really loving to be able to dig into her materials. And I'm even more excited to have her on the podcast with me today. So Robin is a homestead cheesemaker from British Columbia. Her husband, Zach, and her own and operate a remote cattle ranch in northern BC where they raise their three young children, they homestead, and they grow the bulk of their own food, dairy included. 
Robin has been milking a cow and making cheese for seven years and recently started professionally teaching homesteaders like me how to turn their milk into amazing cheeses. Hey, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I was explaining in the introduction just a little bit um, how much I've been enjoying your course and all of your content. And I feel like um, you are a much needed voice in the world of homesteading just because it's been hard for me to find someone to, you know, kind of be like the cheese making mentor that wasn't taking it to that kind of um, super intricate professional level of cheese making. So been really enjoying what you create. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's good to hear. Uh, Yeah, when I started, I, so when I started seven years ago, like there wasn't a lot of um, resources really directed at the homesteader. Like, you know, you've got your hobbyist kind of cheesemakers, then you got your commercial kind of cheesemaker information, but there wasn't that, like you're milking a cow, you're dealing with 50 gallons of milk a week, kind of, how do you do that um, kind of information? So um, yeah, I'm glad that I'm kind of able to fill a little niche there because there is a few other spots and it's starting to be more, but um, yeah, it's nice to to meet everyone and kind of build this community up a little bit. Definitely. So how did you get started um, kind of in homesteading and then really get honed in on cheese making in, in general? Um, so I was raised on a cattle ranch, um, just maybe like 10 minutes from where we live now. And then my husband and I bought um, the cattle ranch that we have now. And I was just kind of always like interested in like growing our own food and um, that sort of thing. And my husband was actually raised on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. Um, So we kind of had always kind of talked about having a milk cow and he really missed that from his childhood. So um, one day he brought home, he just showed up with a cow to feed some of his orphan beef calves and whatever happened, I can't remember, but um, we ended up just using that cow's milk for our household. And she became um, our family milk cow for a while until we put some baby on her and uh, so I kind of just kind of got thrown into it a little bit in terms of cheese making because um, really like we were a small family then of just my husband and I and um, our oldest daughter was only a baby then so uh, we just kind of <laughs> like now you've got like eight gallons of milk a day you've got to preserve it somehow so that's kind of how I ended up jumping into cheese making. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like that's a lot of homesteaders. You kind of get plunged in whether you like it or not when you're like, oh my gosh, I'm producing more milk in a day than sometimes you used to buy in a month. So exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> so much milk. <laughs> so much milk. Uh, it's a, yeah. And that's what people say. And they're like, isn't it great? And I'm like, it's a blessing and it can be a curse. It's, it's just yeah. a balancing act. At least it's, it's that's yeah. what I've been learning. In the this spring. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what kind of cows do you have? Do you have jerseys? I'm trying to remember from your Instagram. Yeah. Um, so I have one little Jersey. She's new to me only in the spring. I got her. So she's now, once I started cheese from scratch, I was like, I need a designated family milk cow. So she's my 
designated family milk cow. And then we've got um, just some Holstein cows. We've got, um, I think, five. And they're just like call cows off of dairies. And we use them as nanny cows on the ranch. Um, so for the last uh, seven years, I've just been stealing off them. So it's been very nice to have my own designated milk cow. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, do you, well, just a little background on yeah. our setup, like prior to this year, we'd always share milk with a calf. And so I never really had the full brunt of the quantity of milk because, um, I always had the calf, you know, 12 hours on 12 hours off sort of thing. And then we also discovered that, you know, the cows would hold back quite a bit when they knew the calf was around the corner. And so even when I was milking once a day, I wasn't getting the quantity I am now that we're, you know, milking solely is just us. So what's your setup and how do you do the, do you do caps on or do you wean them? How do you do that? Um, so it's going to be different this year now that I have the, my little Jersey, but, um, so before when the milk cows calve in the spring, so that's my cheese making season when they calve, um, twin calves or whatever that looks like, then I get the milk. And then after that, um, usually I can continue to like steal a little bit off until summer and then their calves are big enough that, um, it's, I shouldn't be stealing off anymore. The calves need the milk because we're trying to put, usually we're putting two to three babies on each cow. Um, so that's what it's looked like in, um, for our setup for the last few years. And it actually works out really nice because in the spring, you know, your garden's not really in full force yet or anything. You are calving season, but you just make that like your milk season. And so that's been yes. working really good and getting enough cheese, um, stored away for the year and stuff. Um, so this year it's going to look a little bit different. So, um, I just dried off our, um, little Jersey and I, she's due to calve in September. I hope, <laughs> um, she, she was pregnant. It's a, it's a whole yeah exactly so I'm hoping that um that uh maybe I can stick her calf on a nanny cow and then just have um have her not holding back because she has just like epic amounts of cream so I would love to have all that cream for the house but <laughs> if if we ended up having to capture that would be fine as well too but, sure yeah. sure and so you were cutting out a minute ago when you were talking about your your Holstein so you've just basically and they produce probably so much more even than our brown swiss I'm guessing there's like such a huge quantity it, when they first calve they and the calves are small enough you're able to leave the calf on like 24 hours a day and then still just get enough milk for the house. On top yeah. Of yeah, exactly. Sometimes like you'll, um, like take it out for the, uh, 12 hours if you're planning on making cheese or something, but when their calves are so little like that, but you're obviously not getting the amount of cream that you would be getting. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've experienced that as well. That they definitely they know how to hold it back very. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're very good at that. So, yeah. uh, so I was, as the season on the podcast is food preservation and, and some of you might be listening and thinking, why are we talking about cheese in a food preservation season? But I think it's really important that as we are looking at preserving all sorts of food on the homestead, uh, that we look at beyond just the canning and the dehydrating, which are great, but you know, there's a lot more. And a lot of times when I'm talking about having all this milk, people will say, or leave comments and say, well, are you going to freeze it? Are you going to freeze all that milk to save it for later? And I'm like, no, because I don't have room in the freezer. And also like that's traditionally people preserve milk in the form of cheese. And so that's why I feel like this cheese making topic is so important in this world of homestead food preserving. Um, and, and Robin, in your experience, how do you find that homestead cheese making, like the kind that you teach is different from other kinds of cheese making? 
Yeah. So like I said before, like you've got your hobby cheese making and you've got your commercial cheese making, whereas commercial cheese making, like, you know, there's lots of studies and they're expecting to bring all of this milk in from different cows and different farms. And so they've got it down to like the pH and all those types of things. And then hobby cheese makers, you know, they're not bringing in that amount of milk or maybe just doing it on the weekends or so. So it's just like how do you how do you bring in 50 gallons of milk a week and preserve that milk for when you are not in milk and um how do you like um yeah how do you work it so that you have cheese all year and so that you have butter all year and those types of things so um yeah I I think that that's really important and I look back to like 200 years ago you know you would have been taught to make cheese probably by like your mother or your grandmother um or your sister or your aunt or something like that and there's all sorts of things that go um, into being able to preserve your milk other than just the actual act of making cheese. You know, there's like, what do you do with the baby while you're stirring curds? And those are things that your grandma would have taught you 200 years ago, but um, it wouldn't have been like she would have told you that. It would have been just like, you would have watched her. What does she do with the baby while she's stirring curds? And just like little things like that. So I think that's um, important. Yeah, it was so refreshing um, when I found you and a few others. Just, you know, prior to that, I'd felt really discouraged by some of the cheese making instructions because they were so technical. And that's just not how I roll in the kitchen, you know, where it's like, it needs to go up two degrees every five minutes over the course of an hour and a half. And I'm like, come on, like, come on. I am not going, I don't have the patience for that. I don't have the time for that. Like, I just am yeah. not that calculated. And so to find you and you're like, hey, you know, people have been making cheese for a very long time and they didn't always have the ability to keep it so perfect and have it, you know, so dead on. And so that's been, um, really nice to know that it is possible. Yeah, exactly. Perfect all the time. And like, you're like, even if you, like, even if you don't go up those two degrees, it's still going to be cheese and it's still going to be very similar to the, to the product that you set out to make, or maybe it's not going to be similar, but it's going to still be probably a good product. It's just, like that commercial cheesemaker where they need to make it like the perfect product every single time. That's not what we're shooting for. We're shooting for, it doesn't matter if our cheese has a tiny bit of mechanical holes in it, um, those types of things. So it's nice to have that group of people that are like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yes, definitely. So when yeah. you are doing your milk season, what does it look like? Like, what are you shooting for to make sure you have enough cheese and butter and such to get you through the dry? period. So I'm aiming for, cause I, um, I'm only making cheese for usually that three months. Um, it's going to be a little bit different this year, but, um, so I'm aiming to have at least one block of, um, so my wheels usually are about four to five pounds. I'm aiming to have, um, either out of milk or, um, oh, sorry. Can you still hear me? The internet says it's unstable. There you go. I can't. Um, got a little bit, yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm aiming to have. Minute, that's all right. Sorry. sorry. Is it better now? I think so. Okay. Try okay. again. <laughs> yeah. So I'm aiming to have um, about a block of cheese for every week of the year, basically. So, um, and then extra butter for like when we're out of milk. Um, and so I'm also 
aiming to have not just like fancy cheeses that are going to be like kind of treat cheeses. I'm aiming to have cheeses that are going to be cheeses that we're going to actually, that my family is going to actually want to eat. Like, you know, just like plain old cheddars, plain old Colby cheeses, things that we're going to mix into meals. Um, and just, yeah, nothing too fancy. And then we are going to have those fancy kind of uh, like seasoned cheeses here and there, but they're not going to be like everyday cheeses. So that's something that I really focus on is making sure that we have enough everyday cheeses like stocked away. I think that's really, really important. And so you're, you're shooting for one wheel a week during that three month, you said three month period is your dry, dry season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I, I kind of just shoot for like in my three months time, I just shoot to have like 60 wheels in the fridge because, or in my like cheesecake fridge, um, just because like they do take so long to age. So then that's going to carry me over until the next spring. And like, they're not going to go bad. It's like, if I make a cheddar, it doesn't matter if it sits in the fridge for five years, it's just going to be a really old cheddar by then. So, um, so that's a really great thing about preserving milk is like, there is some cheeses like, um, Gouda's and Colby's that aren't going to age really well for years, but, um, but a whole, like we're going to eat them within a year. So they'll be fine. Sure. And are you just putting your butter in the freezer or do you have a trick for keeping the butter? No, I just put it in the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. Same with mine. Yeah, and seems um, kind of aim for like, I'm aiming for like, probably yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then cream cheese is a big one that we eat a lot as well. So I freeze that. Um, I just we get like my mom um, gets like sausage jars or pasta jars and I just get her to save them for me. And then I pack it into those jars and leave a little bit of headspace. And then um, it freezes really well, actually. Yeah. As long as it's a really high fat cream cheese, as long as you're not um, like I have a cream cheese recipe over on my Instagram account, that's like hundred percent cream. It's not any uh, milk in there. And if you have that milk in there, it kind of gets that crystally um, texture, but if it's a full fat one, then it freezes really well. Okay. That's good to know. Um, yeah. yeah. I haven't done as much cream cheese. I usually have just been like butter, 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 but I should do some yeah. cream cheese while we have the milk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm just been spoiled with all of this nice Jersey cream I've had. So <laughs> yeah. it's a nice problem to be drowning in cream. <laughs> I do feel very luxurious sometimes when, when, you know, cause I know what it's like to not have any cream or to have milk with like a tiny cream line. And then we have so much, I'm like, Oh, I'm just gonna use it in everything. All the cream recipes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So for those listening who are, you know, maybe they are looking at getting a milk cow, maybe they've had one for a while, but they haven't really delved, delved into the hard cheeses or the, the more, I don't want to say advanced because they don't necessarily have to be difficult, but you know, beyond the yogurt and the soft cheese, what is the best way to get started? If you're looking at this going, this feels overwhelming, you know, what's the first step? Yeah. Um, so I really recommend just picking a couple recipes and getting really good at making them. So pick recipes that are not too fancy, like pick recipes that your toddler's going to eat. Like, um, like I said, like cheddars and Colby's and then just make those and just get like, the, it's such a hard thing to just get, especially if you have a cow and you're bringing in so many, so, so much milk. But um, yeah, just get started and make those batches and it's going to become easier as you make them a few more times. You're going to know what the curds are going to feel like. You're going to um, know when something's gone wrong, know when you have to switch things up. And that just, it's kind of like if you have your 
um, recipes that you go to for the week for dinner. Say like, you know, that you make tacos and you don't really have to look at a recipe or anything. You just know that, um, you know how to make tacos. So like that's, that's with, um, with cheese making as well. Like it doesn't take as much thought to go in and make a cheddar. If you've been making a cheddar every week for, for three weeks kind of thing. This episode is sponsored by New England Cheesemaking Supply Company, because I'm guessing that if you're listening to this episode, you probably are planning to make cheese in the future, or maybe you're already making it. And as you've heard, I have been deep, like elbows deep into cheese making this year, and I have been getting all of my supplies straight from New England Cheesemaking Company. I love their rennet, I love their cultures, the molds and followers, uh, cheesecloth, and They have the most fabulous cheese press, you know, the kind with the springs that keeps the constant pressure. You know how important that is if you've ever tried hard cheese, but I love everything I get from them and I highly recommend checking them out if you're looking at doing more DIY dairy in your future. And don't forget, you can use the code HOMESTEAD for 10% off your order. And we have a link to everything they have to offer right in the show notes. So happy cheese making friends. Do you have any resources or how do you recommend that people get the supplies and equipment? Because there's definitely a collection of things that you need um, to get started that you may or may not probably don't necessarily have in your kitchen just by default. Yeah. So I kind of say like the main thing that you need is a big enough pot. And so when I started cheese making, I actually, this is not what you're supposed to do. I actually used my like black enamel canning pot because I hadn't, I didn't have a pot that was big enough to do that. And that worked and it was, and it had its downsides and um, I eventually upgraded to a different pot. But the main thing you need is a big enough pot that is going to store um, all of the milk that you need for making that cheese batch. Um, So the best one to get would be like a double walled stainless steel. Um, But uh, that being said, like like I said, I made it in an enamel pot, but the walls are too thin. Um, So that's kind of the main thing that you need. And then like as far as a cheese press and stuff, I tell people don't go and buy a cheese press, just make do with what you have until you figure out what it is you actually want to do because cheese presses are pretty expensive and they're not that actually that difficult to kind of rig up. So usually um, when I make cheese, I'm making two blocks of cheese out of a six gallon batch. Um, So one is going into my like designated press that I bought right when I started off that I actually wish I hadn't bought. I wish I would have um, like waited and kind of researched a little bit, made a little bit of cheese seed and what works for me. Um, so one goes into that one. And then one is actually just like a form with a bucket of warm water on top and then a stack of books. And that presses my cheese just fine. Um, that's another thing with like the commercial and hobby kind of cheesemakers versus the homestead cheesemakers is you don't actually need like that um, extensive of pressure. So if you actually do the math calculation for pressing cheese, it's going to give you like this ridiculous amount of weight that you actually need to press your cheese with. And you don't really need that heavy of weight, um, actually to, to make good cheese. Like some of the harder pressed cheeses, like a Parmesan or something do need a little bit more weight, but you can still pack them or I still, like, I still make mine with a stack of books. So, um, it's totally possible. You're going to have a few mechanicals. They're not going to be detrimental to your cheese though. So can you explain mechanical holes for those who are like, what is she talking about? Yeah. What is she talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Mechanical holes. So they're little, um, it's little kind of holes in your cheese. They're not bacterial holes. They're actually, 
um, holes caused by just improperly pressing. And so um, when you press your cheese, there's a few way, uh, reasons that you can get mechanical holes, but the mechanical holes are actually little pockets of water that eventually disperse into your cheese, but they, um, they leave like basically a fossil in there. And so if you have um, a lot of mechanicals, like it's riddled with mechanicals, and that means that you've got all this moisture trapped in there. Sometimes you can get a bitter taste when you, um, after aging, but, um, if it's just a few, like a few, not going to affect the taste at all. So like an ash kind of thing. So that's where you're getting that huge math calculation. Yes. Yes. And so with the press, you, you mentioned a press that you had bought initially and you, um, didn't love it. And I was trying to recall, I think from a blog post I read of yours, or maybe it was in the course you were talking about like that one. Cause I had two, I got one used and I think it's similar yeah. to the one that you had where it doesn't have the spring. And so you crank it down. And then once the cheese kind of compresses and shrinks together, it doesn't have as much pressure on. Is that the kind yeah. of one that you would want to be cautious about if you don't understand the pressing process yet, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And you can totally, like I make good cheese with that one too. It's just, um, it's more like hands-on, I guess. Like usually when I put my cheese in the press, I kind of want to go out to the garden kind of thing. Yes. But that one, you want to come back every once in a while and twist it. Um, if I ever built a press, I would want one that has, um, that you just are putting weight on top of so that it's a continuous pressure. It's not um, ever not having that pressure on there. Another really difficult thing with those crank ones as well is that it's easy to crank them up too high right off the bat. And then the outside, um, the outside of your cheese rind actually gets um, dried out before the inside. So then you get moisture trapped inside your cheese and then that actually contributes a lot to mechanical holes as well. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. So oftentimes like when you have a moisture type cheese, like um, like a Colby or a Gouda and it's got a lot of mechanical holes in it, it's not because you didn't press it properly like with a bat. Are you there? I think we had another yeah. connection glitch there. Oh, there. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry if you're listening and you're, we're getting a little bit uh, underwater sounding. My apologies. We're both on rural internet. So you know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes though, I found that um, it doesn't come through as bad on the recording. So we'll cross our fingers and hope. Okay, good. Not, not too bad, but um, okay. So that makes sense. I didn't realize that with that crank press, you could actually create, you know, an uneven, like more moisture in the middle, less on the outside. That's yeah. interesting. I also did get later on, um, I got a spring press that I've been using primarily. It's from New England cheese making. And I really do. I do like that. Cause like you said, when I'm done with the cheese, I'm usually like, I want to be out of the kitchen now. Like I'm anxious to get outside yeah. and I don't have to babysit that guy. So I would say, I will say that one is, is pretty nice. I can tell a marked difference between the two though. Yeah, exactly. I'm actually really excited. So um, I just was gifted this antique. It's actually a lard press. Um, I've got to clean it up. It's very rusty and stuff. But so it is like that crank style. But I think I can, um, like for the first half an hour before I come back and redress that cheese, I think I can just put stack weights on top of it and then go to that crank. Um, but it's like a nice, big, cool um, old lard press. So I'm pretty excited to try that in my next cheese making season. I saw that on your Instagram. It's amazing. I was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily <laughs> cheese. It was an actual, it was for lard. 
That's, I didn't yeah, know. that's I and I didn't even realize that's an amazing thing about the Instagram community because everyone, well, some people were like, yeah, that's a lard press. So I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, and I think people used it for like wine and stuff as well. So that's another really great thing, um, kind of to go back about choosing equipment. Um, another great great thing is picking things that are going to work for you in other senses um, than just cheese making. Like pick a pot that you can do your preserving for your canning and that kind of thing in as well as make your cheese because like an empty six gallon pot has no use in my kitchen. I need to be using that pot all year long. So um, yes. yeah, so that's a nice thing about if you can use your cheese press for something else as well. <laughs> I like it. Okay, so yeah. pot sizes. I know you, you have a six gallon. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up, initially I had like a three gallon and then with this latest, uh, round of, of milk production, I'm like, I need bigger and all the, the biggest one I could find was like a, a five gallon, I think on Amazon, but it, if I fill it all the way to the top, it's too full at five gallons. I usually make make like a four gallon batch. So do you have any tricks for people like where they could find a really good pot or like minimum size, maximum size sort of thing if they're, they don't have a really great option available right now? Yeah, I think it's really important to think about how much milk you're actually going to be processing because you, if you are not going to be anywhere near six gallons, you don't need a six gallon pot. And it just becomes a little bit more cumbersome, even for just like checking temperatures and stuff. If your thermometer is not going to be able to clip to the side of your pot and reach your milk. So it's really important to actually buy a pot that is going to, um, is going to work for the amount of milk you're going to use. Um, so I got mine just like we have a local superstore. Um, so I got mine from there. It sells like um, to uh, business, like restaurants and stuff. It sells big pots and stuff. So I, that's where I got mine. Um, I think like Costco, like the commercial Costco and stuff like that, they probably would have um, big pots like that as well. Um, so for years before I had my, um, between my enamel pot and my nice stainless steel pot, I had actually an aluminum pot, which is not, it's a reactive material. It's not a material you're supposed to use to make cheese, but I did, I made cheese in it for a long time. And it was just a bit of a in, more inexpensive option than going for that big stainless steel pot. Um, so I, I think just, I really want to say, use what you have and then, and then, go from there. See, it's okay if you just use what you have and then go from there. I agree. Yeah. And at least, especially if you're not sure you even want to do it long-term, it's, I think it's always better to start. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of can guess that, um, you would go to gallon of, um, for, um, milk you're using, but if you have a buyer more, so I'm putting, um, typically I'm putting about a three pound block of cheese in one um, in one of my presses and then you totally don't need to do that. It's just because I'm working with smaller presses. But yes, that that's, I was hoping to ask you that question just because I had, um, I kept trying to squish all of my, my curds into one, one of my little molds. Cause I bought the biggest one I could find, but they're not that big. So it would, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I, bet, I bet these ladies are putting it into multiple cheese presses. So you confirmed my suspicion. Yeah. And another great thing about that too, is because I'm vacuum sealing my cheeses or for the most part, I'm vacuum sealing. Um, like if I was to do like a seven pound block of cheese, it'd be really hard to get it into the vacuum seal bags that I actually have. So that's another big thing too. When you're considering buying a cheese press, is this going to fit in there or am I, I'm going to have to cut it in half, um, which like you can still age cheese cut in half, but it's better if you can age them as one whole, um, one whole wheel. Okay. Can you speak for a minute about, um, yeah. 
the freeze-dried cultures versus like a more natural culture? Because that was, I didn't know you could make cheese with things like whey or kefir um, until about a year ago. That was like a revelation. But I know that in, at least in my experiments, I've had way more fails with using kefir and whey than I have with the freeze-dried cultures. And I want to use the, the, the fresh um, ones, but I'm just feeling still a little confused on which one's better, like why they fail more. Just, can you speak to that for a minute? Sure. So I kind of did the same thing. I think as homesteaders, we're really, we're really drawn to doing more natural things like, um, like culturing our cheese with kefir and stuff, but it is a lot more difficult. So the first, um, I'm sure you've probably read David Asher's, um, actually David Asher's book, um, The Art of Natural Cheese Making. So when I first read his book, I was like, oh my goodness, like mind blown. And I still, my mind is like, okay, I'm going to do all of my cheeses as natural cultures. So I did. And so I had like a, maybe a two or three month run where I was only making um, cheeses that were naturally cultured. And then all of a sudden, I started eating these cheeses and I'm like, oh man, they don't taste that good. And it's just a really, it's an art. Like he, like the book is named, it's an art of natural cheese making. So it takes, I think, I'm sure it takes years of honing and really um, making the same type of cheese over and over and over again, and really getting good at using those natural cultures. And so you're really relying on the fact that that culture um, is a really good culture that it's um, got the really good bacteria in it and what stage of that bacteria is at. And so I think that just takes a lot of practice and I'm not saying that it would, it would never like people do it and they, they have good success with it, but it is um, does take a lot of practice. So I do, I do use mostly freeze-dried cultures in my cheese making now just because I got burned that one time. But I think when I have more time, um, like when my children are grown and stuff, I'll probably go back to experimenting more with natural cultures. Um, my biggest recommendation is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Like, like keep using some freeze-dried cultures if that's what you've been using because you still want to be able to eat cheese at the end of the day. You don't want to like put all this work into it and then you have to throw all of your cheese out because it just it didn't work out. So, um, yeah. Good advice. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think I underestimated the variables involved with the natural cultures. Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, it's kefir. It's fine. They're all the same. It'll, well, yeah, there's obviously a lot more going on there than I fully understood. And those cheeses had a lot more, like, um, I had it on the counter one day and my husband's like, it's growing. Like after I take it on the press, I'm like, oh no. I'm like, no, it's not. He's like, yes, it is. I'm like, oh, that's very bad. <laughs> so it yeah. should not be growing like a loaf of bread. So yeah, lots to learn. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's just, yeah, there's so much to learn with cheese making though. Like that's the exciting part of it. Like the day that I die, I will still have more to learn about cheese making. So yeah. I love things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned keeping basic cheeses versus fancy cheeses and sticking with um, just a handful to you really, really master them so you kind of can troubleshoot. So if someone is looking to get started here, what are your best cheeses to start with that you would recommend? And how do you know which cheese is going to work with your homestead and your lifestyle and all that good stuff? 
Yeah. Um, so I think like if you're wanting, cause most people like they've kind of delved into fresh cheeses and stuff before they're kind of thinking about the, um, the pressed cheeses. So I think probably, like I said before, just pick one that your family really likes. Gouda is a great one because, um, I, I think all kids like to eat Gouda, all families like to eat Gouda. It's kind of a milder cheese and, um, it's not too bad to press. So you can totally press it with um, like a homemade press. Um, so Gouda, Colby, um, cheddar seems like it should be a little bit easier of a cheese to make because it's notoriously hard to press. So I would make like Gouda and Colby first off, just so that you can know that you're going to, you're going to um, work out all the kinks with your press and stuff. Yeah. Good advice. Yes. I have not yet well, I've, I've dabbled with cheddar years ago and then I, it was not great. So I have just stuck with like the Goudas and, uh, the a butter cheese and the Colby's and yeah, I think those have been yeah. a better fit for us. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to wait so long for them to age as well. Like you can eat them after, like I eat my Colby after six weeks. So it's nice when you, um, when you're first starting something, it's nice to actually be able to eat your kind of, and see what's going on because cheese is like the longest recipe you will ever, you'll ever do. And it's nice to be able to be like, oh, that's what I need to do different next time. So yeah, that's ni- uh, nice when you're picking cheeses. So speaking of aging, um, you primarily age in vacuum seal packages, right? You don't, do you have like a designated cheese cave or is it just like vacuum seal refrigerator? Um, I have like a designated refrigerator for my cheeses. So I just have it turned to the warmest setting, which is actually a little bit too cool for, um, for cheese making, but it's still, it still ages them fine. Maybe a little bit more slower than if you, um, had like say a wine fridge, they run at a bit warmer of a temperature. Um, I, before I had this designated fridge, it was only like three years ago that I decided I was like, I'm going to stop aging my cheeses all around the house. I'm going to age them in this fridge. But before that, I was just like kind of ferrying them to the coolest spot in our house. Um, and it's just so much easier in the fridge because if it gets too hot in the house or if it gets like it freezes in some rooms of our house, you know, so it's just more consistent. And I am consistently being able to eat the cheeses that I make doing it that way. Do you notice any flavors or differences because of the vacuum package versus like the traditional aging method, or is it kind of like not, not super noticeable? So when you open up, like this is, this is probably people would get deterred by this, but when you open up a cheese that's been vacuum sealed for quite a while, um, and especially if it's kind of been sitting in its own juices a little bit, it smells bad. It doesn't smell good. And it sometimes doesn't even taste that good right off the bat. But after you let it air out for a couple hours, then it's completely fine. It doesn't taste like it's been stewing in its own juices for six months. So um, yeah, so as long as you let it air out, you're fine. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm trying to think there was another, <clears throat> there's been other foods that I've had that happen where you first open the package and you're like, oh, and then it goes away. I'm trying, I don't remember what food I was thinking of, but yeah, I've experienced that with. Yeah, exactly. And if it doesn't go away, then maybe, yeah, exactly. If it doesn't go away, then maybe there's a problem, but for that first two hours, don't judge it right off the bat. Sure. Give it a chance. Give it a chance. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So one question that I see come up a lot, especially when people, you know, on social media are, are drooling over someone like you who has so much milk and you're making all this fun stuff. And they're like, well, that's great. But I, and I really want to make cheese, but I don't have a cow yet. And the, the raw milk that I may have in my area, um, is $10 a gallon or $15 a gallon, which 
I will just say folks, it's worth it. If you're buying good raw milk from a farmer, like that's a, those are decent, good prices. They, it's worth that, but it can be a little tricky when you're paying that much per gallon and you're meeting six gallons for a batch of cheese. So do you have any thoughts for folks who want to do cheese making, but they don't maybe have a dairy animal at this point? Yeah. Um, so I, tons of people make cheese with pasteurized milk. So if you like in Canada, we can't, um, you can't buy raw milk. So tons of people do make cheese with pasteurized milk and they make good cheese. I have no experience with this, but I think it's a really great way to be able to start and be like, do I even like cheese making? Because this is, if you get a dairy animal, if you get a milk cow, this is going to be your life. So it's nice to be able to kind of test it out the waters a little bit before you jump right in. Um, it's always nice if you can actually meet um, with a farmer or a, um, another kind of homesteader that has a milk cow and maybe you can make cheese with them for a little bit. So that would be a good way to get around it. Um, but if you are purchasing milk at the store, try and make, um, batches of cheese that don't need as much milk. So, um, that would be like maybe because feta, you're still gonna get a huge yield out of maybe even like sit down and eat with cheese and crackers. It's more of a cheese that you're just going to be sprinkling onto your salads. Um, so those types of things, just getting around, having to use that huge amount of milk. And you totally can um, make like Colby's or Cheddar's or anything with um, smaller amounts of milk. Just know that you're not going to get a huge yield. And it's a lot of work to put in for a two pound block of cheese. But if it's something you're really interested in, then that's fine too. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So my final question here as we wrap up. Uh, this is something that I was very disturbed to discover when I started doing this. Uh, the advice to not make bread and cheese in the same kitchen within like one source of like a week of each other. And I'm just going, that is not possible. Like, this is unreasonable for you to ask that of me. How do you navigate that issue? Yeah. <laughs> So that's another huge thing, a huge difference between homestead cheesemakers and kind of hobby commercial cheesemakers. Morning, like with your cheese pot, you should be making bread. That's a good use of your time. Um, so I think the biggest thing that I say is don't start making your bread until your cheese has been cultured. So bring your milk in from the barn, put it on the stove, put your culture in, um, let it inoculate for about an hour or so until it, so that that culture has um, had a good chance to kind of get going and then start working with your yeast um, kind of things. So just try and be making it on the other side of the kitchen. Um, but as long as your milk has been well properly cultured, then you're gonna have a better chance of that yeast not being able to take hold in your milk. Yeah. Yes. Use the culture as a referee. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. How else and, is there other okay. ways that, that yeast can, can contaminate the cheese or contaminate the milk beyond just like making bread? Because there have been times that I have had yeast that I'm fairly certain is yeast, but I haven't made bread within, you know, a range of days around that. Yeah, totally. There's actually like in raw milk, there's actually yeast naturally present in it. So it's um, whether your your good culture, the culture you want can actually take hold first off. So last week, um, I don't know if you guys had that huge heat wave, but here, like it was so hot. And I think the whole world was hot last week. So I got so many questions and like pictures sent to me from people um, of their cheese as having early blowing. So that's when it, um, your cheese actually kind of balloons up a little bit in the first couple 
several days after making it. And so that's most often caused by yeast, sometimes caused by coliform. Um, but that the, like yeast loves high temperatures. So if it's a really high temperature day, I don't make cheese. And um, that just helps me prevent having that yeast contamination or the it, maybe it's even coliform contamination because everything is just working so much faster when you've got that heat. Yes, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this was awesome. Um, any other last bits of wisdom or thoughts as we wrap up? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I'm just so excited um, to be um, part of this community that we're kind of, that's kind of developing. Um, I'm very excited for the summer on my Instagram account. There's going to be other um, cheesemakers and kind of dairy animal owners taking over um, my account for a uh, couple days every week. So we're going to get to learn from um, like goat cheesemakers and sheep cheesemakers and um, pasteurized milk cheesemakers. So it's going to be um, really fun to kind of learn from other people as well. So I'm very excited about that. Awesome. Um, and where can folks connect with you? So what's like your Instagram handle and anywhere else that you may be online? Yeah. So just Instagram is kind of the biggest one. And then my website. Um, yeah. Instagram mostly right now. And I'm always happy to answer questions like in messages and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then also um, on my website, just through email or anything like that. And in your Instagram handle, if I remember, is it cheese underscore from underscore scratch? Yeah. Underscore right? The last okay. as well. On the last. Yeah. Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes guys too. So you can go, if you want to click down okay. there and you're like me, you don't remember stuff that you hear through your ears. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Robin, this was so good. Thank you. And thank you for answering all of my, my own selfish cheese making questions. Too. Oh no, I'm always happy. <laughs> that also helped, I think a lot of folks listening. So this was so informative. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much, Jill, for having me. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season, my Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. It can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, eBooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm going to be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm going to be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving, a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage, and probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old-fashioned on-purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old-fashioned on-purpose manifesto on it. 
A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up. And we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and to see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look.